I'm there you go. Are we at the 15? I think we're right at the 15 minute mark. So here we go. A couple things from the break. Um, that's what I love about community because the interactions in the break are usually more, as important, if not more, than what happens in some input. A couple things for me. Reconnected with a couple of people I haven't seen in a long time. So thanks for coming up and saying hi. It was wonderful to reconnect. Uh, another thing was um, a sister and I were just talking and about the appropriateness of placing this where in the formation program. And I'll say to you what I say to the guys at the seminary, because they're about to be ordained deacons, right? So they've been in the seminary about, well, I don't know, however long, long, long time, four years of college and then four years, they're in the third of four years of theology. And when you get in an institution and sort of a comfortable place, you kind of have your eyes on the inside, right? And I keep saying to them, get your eyes on the outside. This seminary is not the real world. It's preparing you for it, but it's not the real world. So whatever you're hearing now, whatever you're learning now, you should have your eyes on the outside. So you should constantly be saying to yourself, how does this fit in with what I'm being called to do? How does this fit in with my parish community? How does this fit in with the family that I live in? How does this fit in with my own heart and soul? So have your eyes on the outside. That's the phrase I use. Use whatever phrase helps you. But that's what it should be. This, this could become an incubator where the people inside suffocate on their own used oxygen. Or it could be an incubator that gives life. Gives us the breath we need to face, to put our eyes on the outside and actually see who it is we're called to be in the world. Last image that came to mind, a couple of people said to me that this is bringing up stuff for them that they've dealt with all their life. Or there's, you know, It's like I'm talking just to them and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would give you this image because it's a really helpful image for me. I didn't really know about it until I actually became a priest and started visiting hospitals. How many of you are nurses or involved in the healthcare? Anybody ever been with somebody who's had a serious burn? Serious burn. Okay, so one of the things you know if you've ever been in that situation is every day, every day, somebody comes into the person who has a severe burn and takes the skin off the top of the wound called debreeding. First time I saw that, I thought, why are you doing that? How's a person ever going to heal if you keep scraping away the skin? And you know what they told me? If you leave, this is what they call it, the false skin on top, it will never, never heal from the inside out. And that's the image I use every time I experience what some of you experienced this morning, which is, gosh, I thought I had dealt with this and now I'm hearing about it again. It's like, well, just take it as it's going to hurt. 
but just scrape the old skin of self-confidence or self-assurance. Just scrape it off. It's going to hurt a little bit. But let it heal from the inside. Notice the wound. What's the wound that festers still to create hatred or prejudice or anxiety or fear? Scrape off the false skin. And boy, if you're living a real life, your skin is going to get scraped off, if you let it, on a pretty regular basis. And if you're surrounded by the right people in the community of faith where you're experiencing the grace of God, we are guaranteed that we heal from the inside out. That's God's grace given to us without condition. The last thing I'll say before I go on with my planned uh, comments are, whenever I hire somebody to work in the church, or whenever I ask somebody to commit as a volunteer to some area, I always say to them, I hope you have a strong faith. Because you're going to begin to see the church from the inside out. And it's not always pretty. So I'm hoping you're building a very strong faith. I'm hoping it's based on Jesus Christ and the promises he's given to us. So, so far today we talked about um, what shouldn't be present in us if we're to be a leader following in the person of Jesus. A little bit about what to do with fear because that's a natural experience that all of us have. And just a beginning part of accompaniment. So what does it mean to be a person willing to be with others? So a little bit more about accompaniment. If you want an accompaniment, did I already give you this? Matthew 28, 20 would be a scripture that you could go to. 20. Chapter 28, verse 20. It's going to expand on either side of that, but that's just your anchor to look for. One of the things you're going to notice as you accompany people is that the most important gift that you can give them and the most important gift that you can possess is the gift of listening Accompaniment was an incredible gift that Jesus had. Remember the road of, onto Emmaus after the death and resurrection of Jesus? He, he gets into line with these disciples that are leaving uh, Jerusalem, and he says to them, What? Tell me the story. What's been going on? And they look at him like he's crazy because they think everybody's heard the story, and then they begin to tell the whole story. Or the Samaritan woman at the well, what, is, what does he do? He sits down and he goes, tell me your story. Then she tells him part of a story and he goes, well, that's not the whole story, but that's a good start, right? So the gift of listening is one of the most incredible gifts that you can give somebody. So how do I become a good listener? How did Jesus teach us to do that? So there are certain characteristics of a good listener. It's, uh, we start with empathy. And compassion. So that's really easy to do with people we love. Almost impossible to do with people we hate. 
or who confuse our lives, who complicate our lives, who make our lives difficult. Almost impossible. And especially with people who have heard us, I have this little nephew when he was growing up, he would, Uncle Don, how are you? And he'd run toward me and he'd kick me in the shins every time. Every time. He was a very violent little child. And uh, I had to keep making a decision, how do I greet this kid? So my listening was not necessarily ear listening, but it was like, how am I going to be present to him to try to communicate my love for him without dying in the process or being unable to walk? So, so there are some ways to listen that allow you to keep your own self-dignity, your own self-worth, as well as the self-worth and dignity of the person before you. I um, oftentimes have people have conversations with people at our parish about our encounter with the mentally ill. Because we are a parish like right on the highway. We're the old church that you see as you go by Mid Rivers Mall Drive, that old church. 196 years old, uh, we are as a parish. So people have grown used to just stopping, and we're a parish that will feed anybody who comes. So they know they can stop by, and they know that there's usually somebody from staff who's willing to sit there and listen to them. And so we regularly encounter, since we know, right, that we really don't have the facilities for the mentally ill now that we need, um, we regularly encounter them. And how easily we can get frustrated because their world doesn't look anything like ours. They function in a totally different world than we do. And if we keep trying to push them into that world, how frustrating that can be. So how do we love somebody who lives in a world different than we do? What does compassion, empathy look like? How do I accompany somebody who is there? How many of us have ever been told by somebody, you're not listening to me? And if we're willing to actually hear that, we know that it's usually out of stubbornness, or we think we know how you should live, so quit talking so I can tell you how to live. So what of that is present in me, that for me to be able to be a person who accompanies somebody else, how do I do that? So what that means is, guess what? The ministry is not a place to take care of yourself. I want to say that again. Ministry is not a place to take care of yourself. Ministry is not a place to form friendships. Do that on your own time. You should do that on your own time. Friendships are important. But we should not be going in ministry because we're in need. keeps us from being able to accompany someone if I'm looking for something from you. And it leads to some very icky, icky relationships. Some of you may have been treated that way by your priests. You're sort of like the slave of the parish. If there's something father doesn't want to do, guess who gets the call? 
none of us like to be treated that way. We're taking care of somebody else's needs, and it's called ministry. So there's a purity of heart that needs to happen in that place. All right. So all I'm going to be able to do is sort of skim over these today. Um, uh, so the next one I'm going to talk about is, is a leader is a servant of all. So I don't know if you know this or not, but the, one of the main titles of the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. So take the reality that you experience and the title that he has. Hmm. So the more institutionalized the situation is, the harder it is to translate that servant of all. Because sometimes when we're in power positions, when we're the leader of this or that or something else, people feel like they have to toe the line with us rather than see us as their servant. It's sometimes visually communicated to people by them setting up tables and taking them down and us going away and doing something more important. So why do I make a big deal about this? Well, at the Last Supper... How many of you have, are, have, you guys do scripture here, don't you? Yeah. yeah. So you've done the synoptic gospels, yes? No? Way at the beginning, okay. So I get it. So I'll do a little jogging of your memory. Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And called synoptic, why? Because they come from the same vantage point, the same point of view. So they're a set of narrative gospels written to different congregations at somewhat different times in history. And so their main focus is not historicity, but bringing people to faith. And the focus that those three use is a narrative approach. So I'll tell the story about Jesus, his miracles, his wonders, and hopefully that will bring you to faith. Now there's a fourth gospel. The fourth, fourth gospel is John, right done from a different viewpoint. And why? Because here's a group of people who are not the original generation of people. And so they've had a whole generation of people trying to figure out, what does this Christian life look like? So it's not just here's the teachings of Jesus and the events of his life and all that sort of stuff, but now it's like, hmm, I wonder what this looks like. And they've already sort of dealt with the, he's coming back to get us. Oh, he didn't come back yet. So they've sort of dealt with that initial question. They've dealt with the, was Jesus the Messiah or John the Baptist? Well, they've dealt with that question in the early church and established some narratives that they consider to be the most important. But John's gospel has the advantage of a group of people who have tried to live a whole generation and so what do they do? They do some theological reflection on the events of the life of Jesus. And they say, so what? What's the deeper meaning of this? So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for the Last Supper, they would have what? 
No. What would they have? They would have the bread and wine, right? In John's Gospel, the washing of feet. No mention of bread and wine. Hmm. So, if we are a Eucharistic people and we're doing theological reflection about the actions of Jesus at the Last Supper and John's Gospel says to us, you want to know the deeper meaning of Eucharist? Let's look at the washing of feet. So that would be John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. So what ends up coming out in John's Gospel is a very important reflection on the place of Eucharist and what a Eucharistic community is supposed to be about, right? So it's in John 13, 1 to 17. So we all have like artistic renditions of, you know, like uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, you know, or we have all, all, all kinds of dollies, one, you know, that looks down from above, all those sorts of things. But I've never seen a depiction in, uh, in sort of the, the classical artists of the washing of the feet. I'm sure they're out there. But one, the first time I went through the Holy Land and went into these places to make olive carvings, they have these beautiful carvings of the washing of the feet. So it helped me to reflect about what is a Eucharistic community as they wash feet. So let's do a little reflection about that in terms of leadership. So at the Last Supper, who's present? Lots of perfect people who have done everything right from the beginning, right? <laughs> no? You mean there were sinners there? Oh my gosh, no. Wow. Doesn't that just blow your mind? That Jesus was willing to sit at table with sinners and share Eucharist with them. Hmm. There's nowhere in the rendition in the words of the Last Supper that say, okay guys, did all of you get it worked out with God so that now you're pure? And then we'll share at table? Not a single rendition of that. In fact, in John's Gospel we're told that Jesus enacts the Last Supper as he washes their feet. And after it's all over, you know, that, that uh, back and forth with Peter and, you know, Peter saying, no, you're not going to wash my feet. If anybody's feet are going to get washed, it's going to be you. You know, that sort of false kind of, oh, really, I'll honor you by acting bigger than myself. And Jesus says simply, if you don't let me wash your feet, there is no hope for you. So this is my look at the Catholic community, at the Christian community. We are so willing to serve others, but we hide when we're in need. We're ashamed to admit our need. We don't want to look weak or vulnerable in front of people. Don't we believe that a good leader has it all together? shouldn't look 
at odds in front of other people, should never make mistakes, should have it all together. Now that's what we, as leaders, are most afraid of. That somebody would approach us and say, I think you should have it all together because you're a leader. Nothing makes us run away faster than that. But just a little clearing in ourselves, is that how we treat our own leaders? That when we see their sin, their vulnerability, it doesn't mean don't be responsible for the sin. It means that's who they are. Just like us. And that leader who is Jesus says, I know you're sinners now. Sit down here, take off your sandals, and I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to take the place of the servant who should be doing this, who met you at the door. The slave. I'm going to take the slave's place to lift you up. To me, what he does there at the Last Supper gives great dignity, great dignity to those who have nothing and yet still choose to serve. So as a leader, we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, right? After it's all over, he sits down, put his robe on, then what does he say? Do you see what I did for you? Now, you do it for others. I'm suspecting that at your Holy Thursday service, you don't have like 300 people who are saying, oh, please let me have my feet washed. I can't wait to stand in front of other people and take my shoes off. Right? You almost have to beg people. What's wrong with that? Have we as leaders not shown the way? So is that very ritualistic thing we do on Holy Thursday disconnected from the rest of life? So it is like a silly thing? Why would I take off my shoes now when you won't even talk to me during the week? Why would I let you wash my feet if you don't even know my name? After how you've treated me, why would I let you even touch me? I'm wondering how different it would be if we as leaders could acknowledge the people that we have hurt through our leadership. That happens. And prior, sometime prior, like as it happens in the year, be able to approach people and say, you know, I really think I hurt you by the choice I made, and I'm sorry. Then just keep a little list of those folks. Then when you're getting ready for Holy Thursday, go back to them and say, you know, when we had that interaction, I apologized to you. Would you be willing to let me wash your feet? Because that would really help me solidify my choice to serve you. It would actually have a root in reality. It wouldn't be a play thing. Trying to convince somebody to get up there, but it really would be rooted in relationship. 
The more institutionalized we become as a church, the less connected is real life to our rituals. Something you go to do at church and then your other life is here. How can we, as leaders, connect those two? So again, if we start looking in the mirror first, noticing our own beam, who are the people whose feet we need to wash, and we have refused at this point to do that, because they're not worthy of our attention, they're not worthy of our forgiveness. If I do this, they'll just hurt me again. How many times do I have to forgive you? Seventy times seven? How are we being servants of all? So the next thing I'd like to talk about is accountability. The scripture I would give you would be from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. I apologize ahead of time for the fact that we as priests, for the most part, do not give you any modeling about how to do this. For the most part, we are lone rangers. Most of us, if we live in community, meaning, so it's not like a religious community for the most part. It's somebody gets put in your house with you. You don't get to choose who that is. And so most of us live such busy lives that we cross each other and sometimes have dinner once or twice a week together. Mostly good people. But here's the part about Catholic priesthood. We're the most unaccountability group of people, professional group of people on the face of the earth. And we see where that's led. We, we as a priest, I as a priest, have a responsibility. It's part of canon law. I'm supposed to be, do a retreat every year. I'm supposed to have a spiritual director. And I'm supposed to go on a study week at least once a year. I'll betcha the number of priests who do that is very small. And how many of you have ever been given uh, any sort of an inside track at helping your parish priests be accountable? How many of you really feel comfortable enough? I mean, you've been selected to be in leadership. How many of you feel comfortable enough with your own priest to be able to walk and go, something up, Father? I'm really concerned. And we truly, we, priests, really, truly could go through most of our lives without that accountability. And I'm sorry that we don't give you a model or an example to follow. I'll just tell you my story. So for me, I would not be alive today. I would not be a priest today. I would not be the person I am today 
without three things present in my life. So one of them is a pre-support group. About 35 years ago, maybe, uh, there was a presentation given to the priests of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, which sort of said, you know, we know you're not religious order priests, and we know you don't belong to a community, but it's really smart if you have a group of people who share your own life to be accountable to on a regular basis. And so I would guess um, there were maybe six or eight groups started at that time when there were 270 of us priests. And at this point, our group is the longest lasting of those. So we've been at it for 35 years, and we meet once a month. No one ever misses. Because we made a commitment to each other, and you'll laugh about what how we make a decision about whether to miss or not. We say nobody misses unless you were on a European vacation and you would have come back for that, whatever it is that you're going to miss the meeting for. That's hardly nothing. Except a parent dies or a family member dies, and then all of us would be there to celebrate that anyway. And let me tell you this. It's, it's rocky. It's messy. I'm sure it's very much like a marriage in some ways. We don't live with each other 24-7. But it gets rocky. It's hard for us to really live real lives. So those other six men that are in my group, uh, they know me and they know what I value to live like. And they have the responsibility to support me and the responsibility to hold me accountable. I also have a group of parishioners who are from my past parish. So that's Our Lady of Good Counsel. We as a team got together to start parish renewal weekends. And we thought as a leadership team, we should start praying together like we're going to encourage other people to do after the retreat. And we have been together for the last, I think, 26 years, something like that. And we meet once a month and pray with each other, share life together, support each other and challenge each other and share a meal with the same expectation. Nobody misses. And our lives depend on it. And that's a good dependency. The people that you work with ought to be able to have the ability to kind of get a message across to you without publicly embarrassing you. So there was a, um, a Notre Dame sister that I worked with for many years who uh, we did some wonderful work together, but periodically I can get really full of myself, you know. And so she said, when we're in public and that starts to happen, I'm going to give you this little signal like this. And I'm going to say one word, but not the other word. She says, that's when you go to father, from Father Wonderful to... <laughs> and I don't want to say that in public because I don't want to embarrass you, but I want you to know when you're doing that. I don't know if any of you ever get afraid of being out there on your own and kind of swimming in the deep water without anybody to save you. That's how it happens. You let people save you. By being vulnerable, being supportive, being accountable.
to not believe that you can do this all on your own. Encourage each other. I'm not sure after this program if people are encouraged to stay together as a group, but it wouldn't be such a bad idea. Wouldn't be such a bad idea to stay connected with each other on a regular basis, to know what you've been taught, to know the formation you've gone through, to know the values you've set for yourself, and to have the freedom to support and encourage as well as challenge each other. If it's done out of love, there's nothing better. And it's so much how Jesus' relationship is with us. He puts no conditions on it, but he's not afraid to tell us when we're doing really good and when we're not doing so good. But his love is never up for grabs. It's always good to hear another voice. Um, So this is where I experience this the most often. Uh, And it's a very, like, task that has to be done all the time. But it's in putting together a bulletin every week. You know, like, I can be totally convinced that the column I write every week as a reflection on Scripture, I can totally read that twice, three times, and think it's done, ready to go. I can't tell you how many times I just completely miss something, like there's a wrong word or spell check did something weird with it and whatever it is. How important it is to have somebody else with eyes on it who, can, who has the right to say, Father, you made a mistake. Or do you really want to say that? Is that really true? How much more important is that in our whole lives? To have that openness to people giving us that. Let me ask you to now reflect upon the the, the word commitment. What I want you to do is to think through your memory of the scriptures that you know, both uh, First Testament and Second Old and New Testament. Um, try to think of the many stories that you uh, know where someone is making a commitment to another person or a community of people. What would be those favorite ones that come up that you go, wow, they did that for that person or that community? So those commitments that make us turn our head, those commitments that catch our attention, those commitments that make us 
sometimes, you know how something takes your breath away? You know, you, you um, like, Cookie, where are you? Yeah, Cookie just, we just connected after years of, uh, from our time at St. Mark's, and Cookie just told me that both of her parents died this past year after being married 72 years. Wow. I mean, that blows me away. Those are the kind of commitments that just take my breath away. Now, I just, you know, having known both of them and being able to worship and serve with them, it just, I know the day by day that went into that. I, some, I don't know all of it, of course. But those are the kind of things that make my breath go away. Uh, you talk about the gift of awe and wonder. You know, pray for the gift of awe and wonder for the whole, from the Holy Spirit. That's where I experience it most. Is learning about people's lives and hearing how they just lay down their life for somebody where there really is so little that comes back sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And they just keep doing it day after day after day. I love to hear those stories. I love to experience leaders who are like that. Leaders who really would Make a com- have made a commitment to people. I remember um, when I was a young priest, in addition to the first place I was uh, being a place where the pastor was a pedophile, I also taught at St. Dominic High School. And when I was given the curriculum, uh, I was told, as part of sophomore religion, you teach sex ed. I said, well, okay. I can do that in a religious context. And it was sort of a Christian lifestyle course and things like that. So it seemed to fit in. So I began to teach it as part of the curriculum. And there was this huge uproar because nobody told me that nobody had ever taught this before in the school. (laughs) Well, the long story short is that there ended up being a parent-pastor meeting called, outside of my knowledge, to get rid of me. Because I was the reason that their kids were eventually going to get pregnant. Because now they knew how it worked. So the reason I'm telling you this is, my mom and dad drove from South St. Louis to O'Fallon, Missouri, and sat with me the whole night. And listened to terrible things being said about me, and wishes for my ill wishes for me and didn't flinch once to me that's commitment so any way that we as leaders can look like that can look like the people who make commitments to others So I want you, over the break, I want you to think about somebody who's done that for you. (coughs) Who's done that for you? And just savor that memory until we come back after break. We'll talk a little bit more about what it means to be a leader who commits him or herself to the mission of Jesus. Thank you.